Good evening. Welcome to our midweek Bible study here at the Monroe Church of Christ. We're glad you could join us on this Thursday evening. We began a new series of lessons last week, and we'll continue that this week, and it will last us uh, probably through the greater portion of the summer with some breaks uh, because I will be gone uh, a couple of times uh, up to camp at Wisconsin Christian Youth Camp where I'll be working uh, toward the end of June. Uh, may be able to do some of the lessons from there. We'll just have to see what my uh, internet connection situation is and uh, what resources I'll have available to be able to conduct that uh, remotely. But uh, we're glad you could join us this week. We are just on the second uh, lesson, the second real uh, installment of this study of how we got the Bible. And we're studying the, the, the way in which the word that we have, what we call the word of God, it's the, the, <clears throat> the, the, the Bible itself, how it came to be. We're not discussing the, um, the idea of inspiration. We accept the inspiration of the scripture. We accept God's providence and it being compiled and put together and, and, and placed in the way it is in our hands. But we do want to examine how these documents and how these words were recorded, compiled, edited, how they were lost and found and then put together. And we're just at the beginning stages of that study and just at the beginning stages of understanding. And it's a pretty deep uh, kind of study. This is pretty technical and a little bit academic, uh, really, when, um, when you get right down to it. But there's a purpose for it. It's not simply to understand the history or the linguistics or the, the literature or, or, or something like that. Uh, no, this, this is to help grow our faith, to help strengthen our faith, to help us to see where the Bible's place is in our life. What purpose does it serve? Because lots of religious faiths have different texts, different what they call holy texts. <clears throat> and we're no different because we have the Holy Bible. But how do we view it? Do we look at it like, say, the Muslims do with the Quran? Do we look at it like any other religious group would with their holy text? What place does it have in our life? What purpose does it serve? And how do we keep it in the proper perspective? Last week, we talked uh, about some basic things, about some basic concepts of authorship and how that can be kind of a fluid thing, evidence that some of the things that were written were not necessarily written all at once and then locked in and then handed down. These are stories being recorded by people as time goes on to, to tell the story of God's people, to tell their history. And occasionally it would be picked back up by someone else and they might put some more things down in there. We looked at uh, the, the books of Moses as they're called, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And we looked at some of their history and we noted that uh, it appears that there's evidence of more than one author at work there because of those doublets. You remember those stories that are told twice and, and how one group seemed to consistently refer to God with the term Yahweh. The other one consistently uh, used the word Elohim. And we believe there's a difference between what they call the J author and the E author and then the P author, the priestly authors. Uh, and then we had this other uh, interesting person that I mentioned called the Deuteronomist. We're going to talk more about who that is tonight, and we're going to, we're going to move through the history of these books, and, the, and it really is a history of God's people and what they were writing and how they were writing it and how we ended up with it. Because remember, this is an amazing story. 
the, the life and the story and the history of a nomadic desert people thousands of years ago is in our hands. How did that happen? How, how did this come to be? So let's, let's begin, though, tonight in Luke chapter 1. And let's look at a concept that Luke himself mentions. <clears throat> Luke chapter 1, verse 1. This is the introduction to Luke's gospel. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that have been taught. Uh, in other words, Luke says, a lot of people have been putting together pieces of the story. They've been compiling accounts of the things that we're talking about, and Luke's going to do the same thing. What he's talking about there is source material. We mentioned that last week. There's source material. There's evidence in the Old Testament, in, in, well, throughout the Bible, but particularly in the Old Testament with those first five books, there's evidence of source material being used in the writing process. What, uh, what one person may have written and who it may be attributed to, they may have written only a portion. And someone else picked it up and tried to finish the story. And they used some of those other pieces that they were building together, this puzzle, which eventually became books like Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. And we're going to talk some about Deuteronomy tonight. But this idea of compiling stories is not, I mean, that, that's not a new concept to us. In fact, that's an ancient concept. What is new is the idea of single authorship um, and, and, and storytelling that people put their name to. Um, in fact, for, the, for most of history, up until really the medieval times, uh, authors did not put their names to things. And stories were a, a community uh, of stories that were used and recycled to tell stories about whatever hero you happen to be talking about. If you've ever watched a lot of TV, particularly I would say procedural dramas like Law and Order or, or, um, or NCIS or things like that, um, it's, it's very often you can watch a little bit, watch the first 10, 15 minutes until the first commercial break or ad break now that we're streaming. Uh, you watch to that and you can just about figure out if you've watched enough of them, who, who the bad guy is going to be, who, who's going to be the, the culprit, the, the criminal that they catch at the end, because usually they're revealed and hints are present along the way because we're just retelling the same stories. A lot of times it's one of the major criticisms of Hollywood today is they're not making anything new anymore. They're not coming up with original stories anymore. They're rehashing the old stuff, the archetypes and the stories. And when you go back in history and look at stories that were told, it's hard to nail down one author, one source for those stories. A lot of times they were legends or oral traditions or stories passed down that were then placed on top of real people or real people placed on top of them. Look at things like King Arthur uh, or Robin Hood, the character of Robin Hood. Well, can, you, can we go back and find definitive text uh, about Robin Hood? He, he was probably based on a real person, but these were probably kind of folklore, folk stories of the time that were told through song uh, or, or through stories that were commonly known. They weren't necessarily written down somewhere with an author's name. Walter Scott, who wrote the book Ivanhoe, was one of the first novelists to basically admit, yes, I wrote the books. 
for a great deal of, of history, novelization of these stories was kind of frowned upon, looked down upon, and those who wrote them did not want to be known. Uh, and so it's only very recently that the concept of an author writing a story and giving us a definitive picture of a character uh, it has even come to be. And so that's why it's hard for us sometimes when we read the Bible to look at it as any kind of a compilation because it flies in the face of what we understand about authorship. And we tend to have a view that if it's not a single author writing with a singular purpose, that it's not credible or someone else has touched it, and therefore uh, we can't be definitive about what it says or what it means. And yet, this was the common way things were done. It was even legal until relatively recently in human history to write something and sign someone else's name. I think I mentioned about William Shakespeare. Uh, I may have mentioned it, I can't remember, last week. Uh, but Shakespeare... We talk about William Shakespeare and his writing and his plays. We don't really know if William Shakespeare wrote anything. You know, he didn't leave behind any accounts in his household. There's no real definitive historical proof that he wrote Macbeth or Romeo and Juliet or any of those things. We find signatures of his and they all look different. It's very possible that other people wrote these plays and wrote the name William Shakespeare on it that wasn't considered dishonest, plagiaristic, or illegal at the time. The name Shakespeare was just, was, he was a real person, but he, it was almost a common term used to refer to playwrights of the era. We think of things as very definitive. Uh, it would be illegal for me to use another author's name on something I wrote. You can't use a, a pen name of a real person, for instance. That's, that's illegal, that's a violation of the law because we have different ideas of what authorship means. And we have different ideas about ownership of that. And yet, most of what we, um, most of what we get our news from, very, very rarely, and this is interesting, very rarely do any of us get news from a singular source anymore. It's almost completely aggregated. And I want us to remember this word, aggregated, or aggregator. Um, when you pick whatever news outlet you prefer, if you like CNN, if you like MSNBC, Fox News, if you read the New York Times or USA Today, what you're reading is really a compilation of news stories from a lot of different sources. Uh, you, you'll read, you, you've read stories that were from Reuters, from the Associated Press, from staff writers of the New York Times or whatever it is you're reading. They're not all a singular source that source that you're reading has, has pulled from news outlets and, and uh, agencies, has pulled those stories in to give you the story of the day, the news of the day. Uh, and this is something that's common to us. We don't think about it a lot. But the idea of aggregating sources into one place uh, has been a concept that we've accepted for a long time. And yet when it comes to things written, uh, like the Gospels, like the Old Testament, like Holy Scriptures in general, we have a tough time thinking of them in that way. But essentially, a lot of the Old Testament was an aggregation of the stories. We have to go back to 622 B.C. We go back to several hundred years before the time of Christ, and we find God's people are, are divided, and we have two priesthoods, 
that are in existence. In the north, we have the Mushite priests. These are from the line of Moses, priests descended from Moses. In the south, you have the uh, Aaronic, not ironic, Aaronic priests from the line of Aaron. They had descended, and they're in the south. Now, they're in Jerusalem. Those in the north, they worshipped at a place called Shiloh. In the south, they had Jerusalem in, in Judah, so they worshipped in, in Jerusalem. And uh, now you say, well, Aaron and Moses, they're from the same line. How can we have two separate lines represented in the priesthood? Well, we all have family, right? Think of your family. Think of, uh, you know, you have your immediate family, even your extended family. But think about those cousins you have that live in another state. I have, uh, I, in the recent years, I've tried to get a little more in touch with my family history and uh, the, the Glover side of my family, my dad's side of the family particularly, uh, because my grandfather, who passed away 17 years ago, had several brothers and a sister, and they've begun dying uh, now. They're reaching that age. And so I have these great uncles that all live out west uh, in Washington State and in California, and I have cousins in Montana and in Texas and in Tennessee. And I've been trying to reach out and reconnect with them and learn the stories of our family and I spoke to my grandfather's youngest brother uh, a few months ago and uh, haven't talked to him in maybe 20 years. I uh, haven't seen him in, in about that time. And it was so great to reconnect. And we're still family. But you know what struck me is how different our lives are. His kids had different lives than my dad. Their kids, very different lives than me. They grew up in a different culture, different states, different church backgrounds, different everything. We don't have a lot in common. We are family. And at one time we were, had some, some things in common, but not so much anymore. We got separated. We went to different places and we experienced different things. And so the Aaronic priests of the South and the Mushite priests of the North, they're family, but they're separated family. And, and they're living different lives and they're, and they're practicing different things and they're teaching different things. And yet, in all of this, they kept writing. They keep writing and keep writing. Uh, and, and the nature, we talked a little bit about this last week, the nature of how things were recorded in ancient times, usually on papyrus, and we talked about how little of that survived because it deteriorates so easily. The more you touch it, the more you handle it, the more it breaks down because of the oils in your, in your skin. And eventually, when a text was nearly unreadable, they would rewrite it. And so constantly, these ancient texts are getting rewritten and rewritten and rewritten. And sometimes they would just e erase it and turn it sideways and write it again. And so we, we found uh, copies of things that had two or three layers written on it that we're able now with modern technology to kind of figure out what's underneath. But this was how they kept their story alive. This was how they kept their story going. And so they were writing. Josiah was the king at this time, and he was in Judah in the south uh, with the Aaronic priests uh, serving under him. And in 2 Kings chapter 22, there's a really interesting story that they're, they're, they're milling about, and they find some documents. And they don't really know what these documents are, and they take them to a, to a, a female priestess, and she reads them, and she's able to conclude, and they are able to conclude that this is 
the book of the law or, or some kind of form of the law, the old law that had been thought lost, that had been forgotten. And Josiah the king, when they take a look at it and they start reading it, they realize uh, we're doing everything wrong. We're not doing anything close to what this law tells us that we're supposed to be doing. And so Josiah sets about uh, enacting major reforms in, in the south. He tears down all of the places, the alternative places to worship. They now must worship at Jerusalem, at the temple, where God will dwell, and the priests will oversee this to make sure it's done correctly. They begin piecing together and rebuilding the law of the people as given by God because it had been lost. Now, what they found, we believe to be the book of Deuteronomy, but it probably wasn't the book of Deuteronomy as we have it. It was probably parts of Deuteronomy. Uh, so we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, which in, in their, uh, their authorship seem to have a few different sources pieced together over time, edited, added to, changed um, as the story evolves. And then Deuteronomy, or at least the beginning parts of Deuteronomy, the core of the law is discovered. We don't know exactly what part, but there it is. And so we have an individual enter the picture who takes up this law that's discovered and goes to work on it. And we call him the Deuteronomist. The Deuteronomist, uh, the idea that there was a singular person who contributed this that we're going to talk about is relatively new. Scholars have really in the last hundred years, uh, less than a hundred years, begun putting this together based on the uh, linguistic styles, the syntax and and, and the grammar and, and all of those things. And we could spend a lot of time talking about the reasons why we believe this was one person doing this work, but it's pretty well concluded at this point and decided by most of historians and most of scholars that this is probably the case, that someone in the time of Josiah got a hold of what they found, this book of law, and began working on it. Now, he, we wouldn't consider him to be the author of Deuteronomy, but he was the editor of Deuteronomy. And he wrote... Uh, and, and began to work through what they had found and, and add to it and, and help it to be more fleshed out. So what we have today as Deuteronomy is, is, exists in large part because of this person, the Deuteronomist, because he took this piece of law that they found and he used it as the basis to build out what the people needed in order to worship God. And from there, he took on the task of building a history of God's people to that point. So he took this text and he took other source material that they had available. Do you remember that list of, of all those books we talked about last week that we don't know where they are? Now, and, and there are lists that come straight from Scripture, straight from Scripture where they're referenced by other authors about books of law and books of prophecy that, that are referenced as source material that we don't have anymore. We don't know where they are. Well, he would have taken some of those things and some of the other writings that have been going on since that time and putting it with what they discovered, which we call Deuteronomy, he built the core and the basis and fleshed out the law of the people. And he decided to use that as the beginning point of a history of God's people. And he begins that history when they arrive in the promised land. And he writes about Joshua. And he writes the book of Joshua. We believe this man 
found Deuteronomy, wrote the completed and refined and edited the book of the law, Deuteronomy, and then moved on from there to describe God's people coming into the land using the history and the sources they had. And he tells us the story of Joshua. He tells us of the early days of God's people in this promised land. He tells the stories of Gideon and of Deborah and, um, uh, and of the Judges, the book of Judges. We have because of the Deuteronomist. He wrote that. And he began telling the story of the kings, beginning with the prophets Samuel and uh, Saul and David and Solomon, and extending from there all the way down to the Josiah. Now, he uh, wrote what we call the book of Samuel. Now, you say, well, there's First and Second Samuel, right? Yes, we call it First and Second Samuel because it's in two different places. He, he began writing and then ran out of room, and then he picks up writing again. It's the same story continued, just on a different piece of paper. So we have two documents, First and Second Samuel, but they were one story. So if you were to ask a Jew, it's just the book of Samuel. Uh, same thing with Kings. We have First and Second Kings. They have the Book of Kings, uh, and it tells the story of God's people, their kingdom, their rulers, and their law, all the way to the time of Josiah. Now, he used again all these books that we don't have that are referenced elsewhere as source material. So, he compiled from other sources. The Deuteronomist did, and put together these stories and these books, and this law. And Josiah used that as a part of his reforms. Now, I know in Scripture it says things like God told Moses to write this down. And, and he did. He probably did. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that Moses wrote it and we locked it down and that was it. Moses did not write all of the book of Genesis. He didn't write all of the book of Exodus. If he did, it's very strange because he wrote about his own death. You know, there are things that Moses could not have written. We talked about that last week. Somebody else had to pick this up and finish the story. These other priests, these other writers, these other uh, um, scholars of the day, historians, uh, and in the time of Josiah, the Deuteronomist, who took this law and edited and filled it out and filled it in and built the history of God's people. Now, why is it that we, we see these doublets, we see these stories, we see these discrepancies in the history from time to time? People will say, well, there's a problem with the Bible. It's a contradiction. There's, okay, we're bothered by that. It doesn't seem that the original authors or, or these people that, that put this together were troubled by these discrepancies. All right, let me use an example. Um, you can go, I'll talk about these news aggregator websites again. You can go to websites that are news aggregators. Um, uh, the Drudge Report was one of the, the big ones uh, back in the 90s when it started. Uh, and it, it, tend, it has tended over the years to be more to the right politically. But maybe you read Huffington Post or Salon.com or something like that. They all do the same thing. They're, they're aggregators of, of, of stories. Uh, if you go to the Drudge Report, uh, one of the, what he does is he tries to compile uh, all of the writings of all the syndicated newspaper columnists across the country. So you can read an article that talks about a particular subject and read another article talking about the same subject where the two disagree with one another. Now that doesn't bother us because we know we're reading the same story told from two different perspectives. 
We know what we're getting in an editorial page. The people, the, and particularly the Deuteronomist, as he put together Deuteronomy and those following books, was not concerned with the discrepancies of the source material because he recognized, and I think we should recognize, these are the same stories being told from different perspectives. And we should put our faith and our confidence and our trust in what the purpose of this is. And remember that. The Word of God, the Scriptures are designed to point us to Jesus, to get us to Jesus. And so there is no need to become all knotted up over discrepancies. If the editors and authors that put it together felt that it, it wasn't a problem, then it shouldn't be a problem for us, but that doesn't mean we have to ignore it. There's some discrepancies because we've got a lot of different sources telling the same story, sometimes from different perspectives, sometimes for different purposes, but all serving the same singular purpose as, as is constructed now to point us to Christ. So we have the, uh, essentially aggregators of the Pentateuch and the aggregator of the Pentateuch and the Deuteronomist, and none of them seem to be troubled by those issues, those doublets, those, those, different, uh, those stories told from different perspectives. They understood this. What they were concerned about was the arc of history and telling the story of the, the grander arc of history and not the details. That's just how they did it. That's how they wrote the story. In 2 Samuel, here, here, here's, here's some discrepancies that we'll talk about. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, Verses 12 through 16, the writer there says that, that God says that David's line, David's descendants, will keep the throne even if they sin. And then you go to 1 Kings chapter 8, and it says there that they will keep the throne of Israel only if they obey. Now, why does that seems like a contradiction? Um, that would not have been a contradiction to the Deuteronomist. The difference between those two was very significant, in fact, uh, because there are passages that refer to David's line maintaining the throne, with the, and it's unconditional, and there are passages referring to his line's stability, and they are conditional on obedience. But if you look at all of those passages, all of the ones that are conditional on obedience mention Israel specifically, and the ones that are unconditional mention a throne. In other words, God's promise to David and his descendants was that it, regardless of whether you're faithful or not, you'll still have a throne. You'll still have a kingdom. But you only get to keep the throne in Israel if you obey. You see, the, the conditional mention Israel. The unconditional mention a throne only. And that turns out to be true because you follow the arc of time and David's line does still have a throne and it's in Judah. It's not in Israel. 